1857, a building was unearthed in Palatine Hill of Rome. In it was a graffito, a wall engraving. It was believed to be from around 200 AD. It's the earliest known pictorial representation of Christ's crucifixion. Now, unlike many works in history, this art does not respect Christ or flatter Christians. There's a man hanging on the cross with the head of a donkey, with another man paying homage with a raised hand. Underneath is this inscription, Alexa Menos Teon, that translates to Alexa Menos worships God. Here's the common interpretation. Alexa Menos, we'll call him Alex, must have been a Christ follower who shared his faith with others. The creator of this image mocked him and his Christian beliefs, just as many pagans did at that time. Clearly, they thought ludicrous, the idea of worshiping a crucified God. It's true then, and it's true today, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We must continue to defend the gospel at all costs, especially as we think about the cross. The liberal Christians empty the cross of its power. Most of our Muslim neighbors deny Jesus even died on it. We, however, preach and even boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a week like this week, passages like today's in Luke, that increase our confidence in the atoning work of Christ. In the span of two chapters in Luke, we learn about the 24 hours leading up to the death of Jesus. I'll go in increments of three hours. We can start at chapter 22, verse 13, at around 3 p.m. Thursday. As Peter and John finish the preparation for Passover, at around 6 p.m., it's dinner time. Christ spends time with his disciples, teaching them many things. After 9 p.m., they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Meanwhile, Judas Iscariot was rounding up the authorities and leading them to the same spot. The arrest arrest took place around midnight, and two trials began soon after. But meanwhile, from 12 to 3 a.m., Peter was denying Jesus. Not too long after the Friday sunrise, at around 6 a.m., the courts officially condemned Jesus. Mark 15, 25 tells us that it was the third hour when Christ was crucified, meaning around 9 a.m. or so. Now we're close to the events of today's passage, just before he began the six hours of agonies at the cross. So let's read Luke chapter 23, 26-49. Luke 23, 26 to 49. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, 
but we for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked them, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts, and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. I decided to divide up this passage based on locationships and time marker at noon. So from verses 26 to 31, we move from the praetorium, the palace of Pontius Pilate, towards Calvary. Next, in verses 32 to 43, we have the events at the cross from about 9 a.m. to noon-ish. Finally, we're told in verses 44 to 49 about the ominous darkness that lasted until Christ's death around 3 p.m., along with the events just before and after it. That gives us some semblance of a three-point outline, but I'm going to go a bit deeper. What I see in each of these three sections are two types of interactions or reactions, both from individuals and groups. In verses 26 to 31, on the way to Golgotha, Golgotha, Jesus encounters an individual, Simon the Cyrene. But he, then he also exchanges words with a group of people, the daughters of Jerusalem. Then we move on to verses 32 to 43. Once on the cross, Christ reacts to those who are gathered, enemies, rulers, and soldiers. But then he also speaks with an individual, one of the criminals next to him. Finally, in verses 44 to 49, again, there's an individual, the centurion, declaring the innocence of Jesus. Also, there are two other groups of people reacting to Christ's death. 
So as we examine these reactions and interactions, we have some lessons from the cross of Christ. One, there's a terrible consequence for those who reject Jesus. There's a terrible consequence for those who reject Jesus. That's verses 26 to 31. Two, there's a merciful assurance for those who trust Jesus. There's a merciful assurance for those who trust Jesus. That's verses 32 to 43. Three, there's a wonderful significance in the death of Jesus. There's a wonderful significance in the death of Jesus. That's verses 44. 49. First, there's a terrible consequence for those who reject Jesus. A quick aside before we discuss this point. It's a bit of a myth-busting. The Roman Catholics have a tradition known as the Stations of the Cross. It's a series of 14 images where worshipers stop for reflection and prayer it's an imitation of the street path in Jerusalem where many believe Jesus walked to Calvary. As expected, there's a mix of truth and error. There's no record of Jesus falling on the way three times. There's no indication that Mary, his mother, met him until later. The gospel writers do not tell us a woman named Veronica sympathetically wiped Christ's forehead and her cloth captured on it the image of his face. But here's what we do have from the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about a Cyrenian man named Simon. Luke alone reports Christ's words to the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, why did the gospel writers, the three of them, uh, include this note about Simon? There's no need to overthink here. The Roman soldiers selected an able-bodied man from the crowd to carry the cross because Jesus was clearly exhausted. Even if the tradition was to carry only the crossbar, it's been estimated to weigh over 70 pounds, and he had to trek about 2,000 feet. Christ has suffered already greatly in the last 12 hours or so. Stayed up all night, agonized in prayer, dehydrated and stressed. Both Jews and Gentiles beat him and struck him with hands and reed, scourged with whips, a crown of thorns was placed on his head, lost a lot of blood. So somebody had to keep things moving, and Simon was pressed into service. Now for some theories about who this guy is, the fact that Simon's name and hometown was, is mentioned probably indicates something. He's likely a devout diaspora Jew visiting for the Passover feast. It's also probable that he became well-known to the early church. Maybe his hometown of Cyrene in North Africa was mentioned to distinguish him from other Simons in the community. Perhaps he even provided the gospel writer some key details of what happened that day. 
curious how Mark mentions his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Um, Romans 16.13 mentions a man named Rufus and his mother. Paul calls Rufus chosen in the Lord and says his mother is essentially his own mother. Is it possible that Simon, his wife, their sons, Alexander and Rufus, all got saved soon after the crucifixion? We don't know for sure, so we'll just go on. And we also don't know how Simon felt about Jesus at this moment. But it's obvious how the women of Jerusalem felt, and they weep for him. Yet our Lord wants them to save their tears for themselves and their children. Even as he's suffering, he's warning the city. There's a terrible consequence for those who reject Jesus. Now, he's been doing this since earlier. Recall how Christ spoke about the city back in chapter 13, verse 34. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. He also said in chapter 19, verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus warns the city again here, showing us a vision of Jerusalem just before God's judgment. Verse 29 reminds us of chapter 21, verse 23, which says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Verse 30 cites from prophecies like Isaiah 2, Hosea 10, Revelation 6. Verse 31 uses an illustration from nature. Greenwood represents a time when Jesus dwelt among us, when the true light was in the world. Drywood represents a later, more desperate time. It's the future great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. So if they stubbornly resist God in good times, how much more will they do the same in the worst times ahead? Again, there's a terrible consequence for those who reject Jesus. That's a warning for all of us, not just those in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Now, there's bad consequences for not listening to your doctors, teachers, and financial advisors. But if we ignore Christ, we'll pay an eternal price. Without Jesus and his mercy, the wrath of God abides on us because we're sinners. We've sinned in thought, word, and deed. That's why it's so important that we understand the terrible consequence of rejecting Jesus and tell others about it. Rejecting Christ would be throwing away the only cure for our spiritual cancer. We'd be turning from the way, the truth, and the life heading down the broad way to destruction. We'd be spurning the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the one unique mediator between God and men. But then there's this glorious alternative of accepting Jesus as we go on to the crucifixion in verses 32 to 43. There's another lesson about how God was in Christ Reconciling the world to himself. 
that gets us thinking about how there's a merciful assurance for those who trust Jesus. So we arrive at the scene of the crucifixion. It's known as the Golgotha in Hebrew, Cranian in Greek, Calvary in Latin, the place of the skull in English. Luke, like others, narrate how Christ was not crucified alone, but with two others, one on his right and the other on the left. They tell us how his garments were divided, the sign above his head, the mockers looking on. Each writer tells us at least one of the three occasions when Jesus was offered sour wine. There are, there are some unique features in Luke. Compared to others, Luke does not make much effort to point out the fulfilled prophecies. Matthew and John mention Psalm 22. Mark mentions Isaiah 53, 12. Luke instead focuses on our Savior's prayer for his enemies and his promise of paradise to the robber. That prayer is in verse 34. I'll read it again. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Here, Jesus practices, practices what he preaches. Remember what he said back in chapter 6, verse 27 to 28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, when he says they do not know what they do, that does not excuse them of their rejection of Jesus. When Peter preaches to these same people in Acts chapter 3, he says in verse 17, Brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Still, two verses later, in verse 19, the apostle commands, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Sure, they didn't understand at the time completely the full implications of their evil. But they still sinned. They needed to repent. They must be converted to be saved. And the father did answer the prayer of his son and forgave many of those same people, as we see in Acts 4.4. 4. But more immediately, that Friday morning, there's one in particular who found forgiveness. It is one of the two robbers crucified next to Jesus. Now, we know from parallel passages that these two were specifically robbers, we don't know exactly what they did, but we do know Romans didn't crucify petty criminals for minor crimes. They crucified notorious and wicked men with long lists of crimes. And here they are, paying for their transgressions. On any other day, they'd be the main attraction, but everyone's focused on Jesus. And as ridiculous as it sounds, both criminals also began reviling Christ, mimicking the mob. But then a bit later, we see one of the two changing his mind about Jesus. What caused that change? I have a feeling it has to do with how Jesus prayed for his enemies. How he didn't speak in kind, but spoke in kindness. How the just one suffered unjustly. The robber perceives that something's remarkable about the man of sorrows. 
even if the three crosses line up parallel, Jesus stands above the other two, morally speaking. The robber starts to connect the dots. Jesus of Nazareth is innocent. What's more, he's Christ, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. This perception of faith leads to his profession of faith. He addresses his fellow criminal in verses 40 and 41. He proves that he understands justice. Then he converses with Christ in verses 42 and 43. He proves that he understands mercy. The robber first reminds his fellow felon that they're right where they belong. His question, do you not even fear God, reveals that he himself did. That's justice. Next we see mercy in verse 42 and 43. The robber has accepted his judgment, but now he seeks grace. Guilty one turns to the innocent one. He professes Jesus of Nazareth as Lord. Humbly, he asks to be remembered in future when he returns in glory. He knows he doesn't deserve it, but asks anyways. The poor sinner extends his hands to the one rich in mercy. He dared to believe he can receive forgiveness. That's what grace is all about. That's what faith is. There's a merciful assurance for those who trust Jesus. So the man went from robber to saint, evil in the sight of the Lord to precious in the sight of the Lord. The day of execution became the day of his salvation. There's a certain warmth and comfort in Jesus using the word paradise, clearly clearly relates to heaven. It's used for this man's everlasting consolation and good hope. Our Savior leads him to see beyond the cruel cross to blissful heaven. And in the midst of extreme pain, this new believer enjoys the privilege of sharing fellowship with Christ for the next few hours. And it's in those precious few hours he learns the deep meaning of the cross. The cross was the only way for Jesus to save sinners like him. If our Lord saved himself from the cross, he could not save us from hell. That leads to the third lesson of the cross. There's a wonderful significance in the death of Jesus. When I say wonderful significance, I'm sort of reaching for an older sense of these words, something akin to strange or astonishing and something related to signs. And indeed, there are four astonishing supernatural events surrounding Christ's death. Matthew 27, 45 to 53 lists all four. One, the darkness over the land for three hours. Two, the veil of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. Three, the earthquake. And four, the raising of the saints from their graves. Luke includes in his account two of the four. First, there's the darkness. It cannot be explained scientifically. The Passover is during a full moon, and a solar eclipse requires a new moon. It cannot be explained prophetically. I'm sorry, it can be explained prophetically. It is 
a sign of judgment. Various passages come to mind. Isaiah 60, Amos 5, and Joel 2. And here's one from Amos 8 concerning the future day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and it's in like a bitter day. For the darkness speaks volumes, it's as if creation itself disapproves of what's happening. Heaven itself stands as witness against the greatest injustice in history. It's as if the sun's testifying against mankind, protesting their false sentence. Reinforcing John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Darkness they loved, or darkness they'll get. The land of Israel has become like Egypt, plagued by darkness. Here's the other sign the veil of the temple was torn in two. So much significance here. I'll just Mention Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, which guides our interpretation. But I really encourage you to just read Hebrews. Actually, the, read the entire book. It's great. But as Jesus hung on the cross and shed his blood through his torn flesh, he consecrated a new and living way for us to enter God's holy presence. Or to put it in another way, no one can come to the Father except through him. There is indeed a wonderful significance in the death of Jesus. Besides the visible signs, there are the audible words of Jesus around 3 p.m. After the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's I thirst and it is finished. And then at last, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This was a citation of Psalm 31, verse 5. Originally, David's expression of trust. Jesus claims as his own. And finally, he breathes his last and gives up his spirit. The life that Jesus lived, the death that Jesus died, demands a response from all. Picture verses 47 to 49 as three concentric circles. With the cross at the center, we move from someone close to the cross in verse 47 to the crowds watching the scene, verse 48, to the followers of Jesus standing at a distance, verse 49. Right near the cross was the Roman centurion, a commander over as many as 100 soldiers. He glorified God. He recognized the innocence of Jesus as man. But his faith went deeper than that. We also hear his words in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. Truly, this was the Son of God. That's not a light statement. It's a blessed statement, like Peter's earlier. A truth revealed not by flesh and blood, but by our Father in heaven. 
But we have here a second convert at the cross that day. Moving one level further from the cross, there are the crowds. We don't have their verbal reaction to Christ's death. Their gestures beating their breasts reminds us of the tax collector in chapter 18, verse 13 to 14, who was justified rather than the Pharisee. But this gesture is also found in Nahum, chapter 2, verse 7, describing the tragic judgment of Nineveh. So we probably shouldn't assume these people repented that day. Finally, we have at a distance the acquaintances of Jesus and the woman who followed him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're named elsewhere, and some of them finance Jesus' ministry. We'll see their role in the upcoming resurrection of Jesus. For now, they join others as eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. Now, as we close, I want to add another extra fourth concentric circle. It's not technically in the sermon text. It's us who read these verses today. 2,000 years later, we too must consider the wonderful significance in the death of Jesus, the terrible consequence of those who reject him, and the merciful assurance for those who honor him. As application, I'd like to, for us to consider two individuals in today's passage. For those who may be listening later or even now, who have not yet placed your hope of heaven in Jesus alone, I ask you, become like that saved robber on the cross. Realize that you are as vile as him. It's not just the thieves, the drunkards, and extortioners who will not inherit the God's kingdom of God. Also excluded are those who covet what belongs to others, those who look with lustful eyes and adulterous hearts, anyone that's unrighteous. You need a supernatural transformation. Must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. New life is only possible through the death of Jesus Christ. So we should learn from this now. Know that you are guilty. Know that Jesus is innocent. Jesus did not suffer on the cross because he has sinned. He took on himself the sins of the world that Friday and paid the penalty in full. Sunday he rose from the dead and weeks later ascended to heaven. In the future he'll return to judge all mankind. But before it's too late, repent and believe. Ask Jesus today, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Secondly, for most of us who are already Christians, let us be like the centurion. Not just the conversion part of it, but the fact that he glorified God. He declared innocent Jesus, while others have declared him guilty. While they said, if you are the Son of God, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus is both holy God and righteous man at the same time. What will it take for us to proclaim that? Let us not only believe this truth with our hearts, but live by faith in it, confess it, preach it. And I pray that the last hymn today will be a testimony for you. 
testimony of your salvation that you proclaim to others. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to deep for dress, helpless look to deep for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross, Lord, just how it's everything to us. Lord, the death and the resurrection of your son. Lord, these are things that are not, these are things that we must meditate on. And the deep significance of it, we want to focus on as we read your word, as we read the apostles and as you read the rest of scriptures, even what was said before the events in the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you that, that your son died for our sins. Pray that we will live our lives in gratitude. May we glorify you and truly say that your son is divine, your son is innocent, your son is pure. We want to proclaim him, even if that means ridicule, even if that means rejection from the world. We praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name.